That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This episode of Postmortem is sponsored by RLJE Films. Find out what's really going on behind enemy lines in the gruesome thriller Trench 11, out on DVD, VOD, and digital September 4th. A deadly disease created by German forces is on the loose and spreading fast. Will Lieutenant Burton be able to stop the outbreak and end the war? Find out in this dark World War horror. Gruesome Magazine calls it a cinematic thrill ride. Get Trench 11 on Amazon.com September 4th. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. We've been able to say this a lot lately, but it's a good time for horror. The multiplexes can be a reliable home for your weekly horror fix, whether from a franchise or something new from Stephen King. But the really good news is that there's never been a better time for horror at home. That the genre has been so enthusiastically embraced by television is something I would never have imagined when I began working. Though I've been lucky enough to work both in feature films and television, I've had my greatest creative freedom and successes on the once-reviled small screen. But small screens aren't so small now, unless you're watching your penny dreadfuls on your iPhone, which I don't recommend. And what's on offer is pretty exciting. In the years since our Masters of Horror series enjoyed much success on Showtime, in the days when horror and anthology were dirty words around the networks, horror has exploded on television. And some really good stuff, too. Castle Rock, Hannibal, The Terror, Walking Dead, American Horror Story, Bates Motel, Penny Dreadful, The Strain, and countless other dark dramas are ready for you on demand at the touch of a remote control. It's not quite the gutter it once was, though I don't know that it has yet earned respectability except in the ratings. But there's so much to choose from, it's overwhelming, and that's a very good thing. And it's not just horror. People often lump horror in with science fiction and fantasy, which makes sense. We are telling stories that go beyond the normal into the supernormal, where it's taking the boundaries of science as we know it and stretching it a bit, as Mary Shelley did in her novel of Frankenstein, or setting alternate lives for the characters we know from fairy tales in our modern-day world. Which brings us to our guests, Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz, have been working and producing imaginative and expansive television for 20 years. Among many other shows, they were writer-producers on Lost, created and produced Once Upon a Time, and are currently show-running a reboot of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, the show that gave me my first job as a writer and second one as a director. I first met Eddie and Adam when I directed a couple episodes of their summer camp horror series, Dead of Summer, and they have a lot of insight into what makes fanciful, imaginative television work, and we'll dig deeply into it after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So where did the team begin? Have you guys always written together? I mean, your produced credits seem to all be shared. We have, 
I don't think we've ever written separately since like high school. <laughs> yeah, um, I met Adam in college in a film class, um, and it was. And where did you go? University of Wisconsin Madison. Go Badgers! And uh, <laughs> it was a Saturday morning, and we were doing our first Super Eight film. And I knew mine was a masterpiece because <laughs> I had the ego of a twenty-year-old who didn't know any better. <laughs> and it was Saturday morning, and I was going to we were uh, in the, like the little editing bay yeah. hallway with our little moviolas. Ah, uh, moviolas! It was college, so uh, you know. And um, I kept looking at my film Back running through. Back then we through. used film. Kids. Yes, kids. <laughs> I remember film. <laughs> there was no phones. Um, so we, uh, and mine was running upside down. It just did not work. And I looked to the kid next to me and I was like, hey man, is yours broken too? And I leaned over and flipped his film over. And he had threaded it in backwards. Uh, and I was like, this kid's got something. And on Super 8, it was split down the middle. Yeah. So the sprockets are only on oh, one side. Yeah. So um, it was funny because that was, our, that was our cute meat, as they say in writing. Um, and Adam thought I was an idiot. And so we were in this film class together. And um, I even tried to partner with him on a documentary thing. We were they asked to us to partner with. up with another student to make a little short documentary. Mm-hmm. And he, Eddie asked me to partner with him. And I said, no way. <laughs> you don't know how to thread a movie. Old. <laughs> right? So, so that summer, um, I come to L.A. and I have my very first internship. I'm the PA on Betty Broderick, A Woman Scorned Part 2, a CBS movie of the week. Wow. And um, for some reason, I was staying in UCLA, and I thought Robertson went to Sunset. Well, it does not. Uh So I pulled over to get my Thomas guide out when a bus pulls up, and out comes the kid from my class. So it was like fate was pushing us together. So I was interning at a talent agency, Abrams Artists Agency, Uh uh, which was on Sunset Boulevard. Being from New York City, I didn't understand that in LA you needed a car. Yes, so taking the bus I, in I just LA is not walk recommended. Or take a bus yeah. or something. So I was staying with a friend and living, sleeping on his couch in Venice. So I figured I'll just take the bus to Beverly Hills. Well, that was a two-hour commute, <laughs> which was which was a, a lot. But anyway, so after my two-hour commute, I get off the bus and there is Eddie parked on the corner of you know Sunset and like Doheny or whatever it was, yeah. looking at his Thomas guy confused, and he sees me and he says, "Hey." He's a kid from my film class. Who <laughs> fixed my sprockets. Yes. And so do you once know where San Vicente again, is? Yeah. So from, from you know, having the film upside down to being lost. But what turned out was we were both um, staying on the same street in UCLA. Oh, you're sublets. kidding. So what happened was I moved from Venice and I was subletting a place in UCLA. And we were both on the same street and we were taking a screenwriting class Separately, we'd both enrolled in the same class, and we we kind of realized we had the exact same, um, you know, taste. And we spent the summer watching movies, and we said, you know, let's let's write something. And so that year, uh, we went to our TV teacher, and we said we want to do a public access show, which is like old school internet. Uh, Yeah. So this was this like Theta Cable. This was yeah. This was was in nineteen ninety two, ninety three. Yeah. This was in Madison, Wisconsin. So we went back to school that fall, and. We did a public access cable like sketch comedy show. Oh wow! Yeah, and um, what it was was our teacher said, you know, there's actually a dentist who produces the show with local comedians. He needs writers. So Adam and I kind of, um, you know, wrote skits and acted in them for this public access show uh, called oh, Hot God. Tonight. 
And once we conquered Madison, we thought, how hard can Hollywood be? And the answer is very. (laughs) Other than the results. Now, if you didn't believe in fate before, this certainly is a good argument for it. Yes. No, this this was actually uh, like a Nora Ephron. We were (laughs) pushed together in our rom-com. A same-sex Nora Ephron rom-com. Yeah. Yeah. So what were those movies that you bonded over together when you were uh, at UCLA? Well, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, they they really we really got into. Uh, um, it ran the gamut. Yeah, we watched from, like Woody Allen to Luis Buñuel. Like, yeah, um, to over. Spielberg to we just I think we were just kind of at that moment where we were getting film literate. We were just discovering. So we were everything. discovering John Hawks. I'm sorry, Howard Hawks and John Ford. And, you know, we were seeing those movies for the first time and, you know, getting into all those old films. And, and I think that's, we just kind of bonded over everything, really. You know, I mean, and we had grown up, you know, on genre films in the 80s. And, you mm-hmm. know, so we, we had loved all that stuff, you know, which had been, you know, mostly mainstream or at least like you know the 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 kind of stuff that that is you know accessible to a kid but now it was sort of like discovering the influences and the things that like that influence those filmmakers right. Right. Arabia for the first time you know? right and yeah. Steven Spielberg's favorite movie yeah, right? exactly. yeah. And, so. and discovering all that stuff and so we, we just were watching movies endlessly and it carried over back into uh, school when we back to, when we went back to Madison which you know um, Surprisingly, uh, University of Wisconsin has an incredible film studies department, and they have an incredible library of actual film. Like, and you could watch. So these were projected in you a could, screening. They had a, they had a screening room, and uh, actually, thirty-five millimeter screening room where they would project films. And we had an incredible professor named David Boardwell, who was um, who wrote a great book called Film Art, who um, about film criticism, which which is great. And he was. Wonderful, and we learned a lot, and we exposed us to a lot of different films. But also, they had like an archive of stuff, and you can just go take out sixteen millimeter films. I remember like sitting in a little room, running Rio Bravo over and over again, wow. and just you know watching it endlessly, and you know were breathless over and over again, and just kind of immersing myself in in that stuff. What were your entry drugs? What were the movies that made you want to make movies? Oh, I you know I think we're both of the same generation, and it started with Star Wars. Yeah, I mean it's, ah. it's a cliche, but it's, it's a cliche. It, it, my but first it's movie fun. job was answering phones for the original Star Wars, and I operated R two D two that year on the Oscars. Wow. That's amazing! Yeah. yeah, no, I mean I we're the Star Wars generation, so we were we were like five year old kids who went to go see it in the theater, over and, and over then again. that was it. It was like that's what I wanted to do, and from there we started to you know. Close Encounters and yeah. E.T. and Indiana so the Fantastic Jones. had a particular appeal. Yeah, I to mean, you. it was look, it was the Lucas Spielberg stuff. It was you know, it was the entry level. Like you know, we I think you know, I was five when Star Wars came out and saw that, and then that led to Close Encounters, which led to E.T. Indiana Jones, Poltergeist, all you know. Um, all of that and and like that was what really got us. I think coming and so, coming, to, you know, being teenagers in the eighties, we we really like you got to see a lot of great stuff come in because, in addition to big films like Top Gun or Lethal Weapon, we also got to see you know uh, Gus Van Zandt's Drugstore Cowboy. Oh yeah, yeah, and Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs in college, and so we really. You know, um, and then, you know, and then for me, my, I had an older brother who was 12 years older than me. 
and you know, like once a month he would take me to a movie and he would tell my parents, Oh, I'm taking, you know, Eddie to see time bandits. And then, he'd be Oh, like, what a great one. Right. Except we didn't, he goes, you want to see exorcist? So <laughs> I was a nine year old kid going to see like, all, like, and he took me to all of the, the, those eighties horror movies. So I saw Halloween in the theater. Mm-hmm. I saw Friday the 13th and you know, I couldn't sleep for weeks, but that kind of that whole experience of, of both these films, it was like the, it was like for someone who wasn't very athletic, you realized you could move people in a different way. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. Uh, all of us have had most of our success on, on television as opposed to feature films. And yet we all come from a cinema sensibility, come from a love of film. And over the years, television has become so much more cinematic. And it really, your your bent for the fantastic, particularly in Once Upon a Time, there's nothing like that that worked on television before. And, and you couldn't have done that kind of fantastical world before digital uh, visual effects allowed that to happen. So tell me how you embraced that kind of love for cinema and brought it into television. Well, for us, you know, we were, we were coming off of um, a show called Felicity. And oh, yeah. we were just feeling like um, we'd been doing a lot of high school shows because in Hollywood, if you have success in one thing, then you you get stuck in that lane. Tell me about it. And uh, <laughs> so we were never able to do the genre stuff that we, we really wanted to. But, but even, I think more importantly, we never really thought we could do it. Yeah, we yeah. started to be like, well, I guess this is what we were good at. And um, we had this idea for Once Upon a Time because we thought about like how frustrating it would be for the evil queen. Everything you do fails because there's always a happy ending. You get a working oven in a gingerbread house and that stupid witch can't kill two kids. (laughs) So we said, where's the one place she could go to succeed was our world. And it really was kind of probably a metaphor for us feeling lost in our career. It was exactly what it was. The idea came out of our own frustration, which is we wanted to do something different. And we felt like we weren't able to do it. So we created a character that was having that problem. And that became the Evil Queen. And so what happened was we took it out and we had a show that had an ensemble cast that mixed genres that was, you know, um, mixed genres. And it had kids and dwarves and dogs and all the things you're not supposed to have. And everybody passed. So uh, what what happened is so we, you know, that's part of Hollywood. You know, you deal with the rejection, you move on. And luckily we met um, Carlton Cuse. And Carlton um, was like, you guys aren't writing what you like, I can tell. And he started to give us the encouragement. And um, he knew that we knew, uh, he, he knew that we knew JJ from Felicity and he was just hired on Lost. And he thought you and Damon, the, uh, the three of us, would get along really well. Damon and he said, Lost. yeah. Right. So, so during the first season of Lost, Carlton had us meet with Damon Lindelof and, and, it was like we we did hit it off, and it, it was like we were brothers that just was, didn't realize it. So <laughs> it the four of us, and you know those two fate strikes again. Yeah, and yeah. so being on Lost really was kind of like school for us because it it helped us find our voice and our sound. And so when we came out of it, um, everyone was like, "Hey, do you have any crazy ideas like Lost?" And we said, "Actually, we have this fairy tale with an ensemble cast and dwarves and dogs and kids." And the answer was great. Because <laughs> the market had caught up to us. Right. So this had been something that had been percolating for a while, for and you basically years. gave up on no, it. No. So yes and, yes and no. So it was, we'd had the idea, I guess it was around 2002, and and then it was a couple of years later when we were on Lost, Lost started, I think, 2004, and 
And then I think a couple years into Lost, like we, I think we mentioned the idea to Damon, like we were having dinner one night, and he was like, "Oh, that's cool. You should you should keep thinking about that." And it, and and our agent, um, Mary Greenberg, who uh, who we had told it when we initially pitched it and got passed on, he had always said that's a great idea and that encouraged us to just stick with it. So, which which was a great lesson, which is like if you believe in something, to stick with it. And we hadn't, you know, I don't think we had cracked it yet and we didn't really know how to do it quite right yet. Until and, lost. And had we sold it in 2002, we would not have been ready to do it and it wouldn't have worked, I don't think. But, but as- for us, what we wanted was, you know, the feeling we had when we saw that summer movie. And um, and we thought, well, why can't fairy tales, you know, every week be done in a different way, more like um, uh, the the Amblin stuff you guys were doing in the right, 80s. right. And and why can't one episode be like a horror, and then the next one can be about grumpy and it's funny, and you know, just changing the tones like any movie. And that was kind of what we said because. When we first had it with the network, they they were like, the first trailer they cut was of Emma, and it made it look like a real-world procedural. Mm-hmm. And we're like, no, it's a summer movie. Yeah. And that's yeah. when it kind of opened up. And, and fans, I think, were really hungry for it, you know? Yeah. It was the first time Snow White had a sword. So <laughs> it kind of... It kind of brought in a group of people, you know, it, we always said once was sort of a genre show for people who don't necessarily like genre. Like, right, right. You know, it somehow was able to, to bring people in, I think, because at its core, like any great story, it was just about emotion and humor and human. Well, speaking of emotion, I mean, this this was a show that, to be honest, I did not watch until the opportunity to direct one of them came on. And then I started to watch the show and holy shit, this I mean, the emotional content of it. The first episode that I did was episode four from this final season seven. And it has the most emotional scene I've done in 30 years as a filmmaker. So, I mean, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, I mean... uh, Basically, Robert Carlyle's multiple characters, yeah. but he is the beast to Belle's beauty, and he doesn't age. Belle ages, and we go through basically the 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 up montage yeah. of their aging together, ultimately to her passing. And we did that scene. It was two and a half pages long in the script. It was eight minutes long uh, in the master. And I know that immediately after, Bobby Carlyle called and said, if you touch one second of this, I'm quitting the show. I have never shot a scene where I was crying while the characters were crying. You did a beautiful job. Yeah, if I look at the 156 episodes, that is one of my top five. I mean, and the, the... I can't watch that without crying. And, and it was funny because when we saw it, um, we just made it its own act. If you remember, yeah, we restructured it's it and we just said, let it play. Because yeah. we knew that, was, that, that, was, that is that rare moment where you actually get to tell a story visually without words, but yet it makes you cry. And, and that, that's what we love so much about that moment. Yeah, it, it was so emotional. And everything, direction, performance, all of it came together so beautifully. And it was one of those cases where... A scene can play on, and in generally in television, you have short scenes. That's right. That's, you just have that, to cut you just to the move through, and yeah. you got to go from story to story to story. And this was a case where we just felt like we had to trust the performers and and, and the story and all that, and just let it play. And it and it worked 
I think, beautifully. Well, in television, series television, for a director, it's also really a roll of the dice because you accept a slot, not a script. Yes. So you don't get that choice. And I feel incredibly lucky to have done that. And every time, one of the reasons I do the occasional episodes is because I keep learning. And this was something, a scene that I learned a lot from. I learned I can't do too many setups. I'm not going to move the camera because if something happens and, and there's a buzz on focus, I don't want the assistant camera guy to say, we need another take because it's out of focus and just let the actors play out. And it just, and these actors were just fantastic. Oh, yeah. no, Emily Raven and, 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 and Robert Carlyle are, are just phenomenal. Just great. Together and each individually are just so well, I was also surprised, because this is mostly a show that deals with the horror genre, that how dark that the show went. Yeah. And I was I never thought I would fall in love with a show that was about Rumpelstiltskin and Beauty and the Beast and Snow White and all these characters. But it's so much richer than that, and it's so emotionally based, and it's about human beings. Even in the most fantastical places, they go deep, and they hurt, and they die, and they continue on in other ways worlds or not and and it was a revelation that was part of the thank you that was part of the conception of the show which was it, the show was meant to be dark but it was it was always our mantra was dark not bleak so that there ah, was there, that there would be hope there was always the the promise of hope or or actual hope a light at the end of the tunnel so you know for example it's the very the second episode of the series was the evil queen casting this curse that brought everyone to the world and she has to, she discovers from Bobby Carlyle's character, Rumpelstiltskin, that she has to kill the thing she loves most. And it turns out it's her father. And the episode ends with her ripping out her father's heart and crushing it to cast a curse, which is pretty dark. Right. But it was like, but it was super emotional. And it, and it was very important to us from the very start to ground the queen in a way where we understood there was this deep pain that was that, and an emptiness that she was trying to fill and, 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 a, and a darkness that she was dealing with. And yet, and also at the end of the episode, you, you also learn that her father's name was Henry, which is the name she gives her son. And you realize that like she, there's a part of her that maybe is trying to atone, that she's trying to move forward and that there is some hope. And it, it was always finding that balance of finding the darkness, but also finding a little bit of hope. And, and, and for everyone, you know, we love the idea that uh, the heroes weren't just heroes and the villains weren't just villains. Yeah. Yeah, and everybody has a doppelganger as well. Yeah. And, and there are layers to their humanity, their villainy, their heroic uh, aspects and all of that. Um, we kind of almost bumped into each other uh, in an early time at the WB. I had directed a pilot called Lost in Oz. And you had done Birds of Prey. Yes. So Birds of Prey is the show that got on the air instead of Lost in Oz. Uh, and and that's where we both met Steve Perlman as well, I assume. Yes. And Birds Birds of Prey was... Um, that was it's a DC thing. That yeah. was DC and that was Lita Caligridis created. And we were, we were writer-producers on it. We didn't create it, but we, we had worked on that. But actually, we bumped into each other earlier. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. But my first job was on Tales from the Crypt yes. as a as a post PA. Yes, and yeah. you were directing an episode, and I used right. to deliver you dailies. I, we <laughs> did mention, yeah, we go <laughs> way back. Yeah, you in the editing. It was one of the rare. Uh, well, I. 
I had kind of reworked what that was originally about and, and had them reset it in the 1950s. And, and it was there working on Tales from the Crypt and got um, Richard Lewis and Rita Rudner. Right. Yeah. Was the part. cartoonist. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And, and I reversed the role. So the, the, the heavy, the boss was a woman. It was Rita Rudner. And then it was a period 50s piece. And, and that was really fun. But yeah, so you and Robert Parigi and all the, the post-production guys there. Well, and I worked, I was, you know, my first job is I was Joel Silver's like third assistant. Oh my so god! So that's how I knew there was the. Were you there when else. they bought Red Sleep? Richard Christian Matheson and I wrote a vampire story that took place in Las Vegas. What year would that be? Oh God, that was it was probably around the early nineties. Yeah, I was with Joel yeah. in ninety four. I was there when it they might were have been doing before. the Tales from the Crypt movie. Oh, okay, I actually dropped off the. The the like the pitch document. It was my job to go ah. and drop it off in Tom Pollock's office, and it was the first time I had ever seen a chairman's office <laughs> with the Oscars. And I was like, I walked in, and it was like there was carpeting. Like I didn't wow. understand. I was like, this is a new level of I've never seen this power book. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the Joel Silver thing. I mean, that was a power office on its own. Yes. No. Joel had the. Um, Joe, Joe, working for Joel was how I think um, I, my first two jobs were were from movie producers. I was assistant. It was first Joel Silver and then Scott Rudin. And through wow, those two, two really yes, tough well, you guys. Can, yeah. yeah. So when you're 22, you you're able to uh, eat a lot of shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have to learn how to eat shit if you're coming to Hollywood. And I ate a lot of shit, um, but I learned a lot. And I watched. And the most important thing I thought was as an artist is I learned the other side of the table. And so through them, I learned the business. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so you can start to understand an executive's point of view. Because as you know, some of this business is you have to work with other people. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are a lot of really great people to yes. work with. And there are other people who have, shall we say, difficult personalities. Yes. Yeah. My first job was Roger Corman. Oh, my God. Was, Tell um, me. Which was my sophomore year of college. Yeah. A summer internship. And I just, like, I cold called and I was like, do you need a free intern? And they were like, okay. They won't turn they their head free. I made sure they had free. And, um, and I worked there a few days a week and, and then it, it was phenomenal, which it, it, you know, it wasn't Roger Corman in the sixties or, or then it was, right. but it was, but still, what were the movies? They were like, that summer they were doing, um, it was Don the Dragon Wilson, Don movie. the Dragon Wilson, wow. and, like, Blood Fist, Three. They were doing <laughs> Carnosaur, which was oh, the yeah. Jurassic Park yeah, uh, yeah. homage. <laughs> homage. That's a good homage. way to put it. Yes. Um, and then, but their take on a well, classic. But what was, what was so wonderful about the job was one, I got to meet him and know him in a tiny way, and and two, I got to do tons of different things. Like I did things like script coverage for the first time. I, mean, I was like 19 years old, I think, mean, you know, and, and well, what like, a great opportunity. And then, and then I was writing the back of video cassettes, like for them. Wow. For their different They're doing the copy. Right. Yeah. The copy, like, you know, oh, he's fighting to get out of prison. John <laughs> the Dragon Wilson yeah. is dragged down. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then I, what I really wanted to do was work on set. And I was able to parlay that into being a PA on one of the movies they were shooting that summer, which was, it was called One Night Stand. Oh yeah, and it was Talia Shire was directing it. Wow, which was which was awesome because a Coppola, right? I know, yeah, yeah. and um, royalty you know, it was shot in like you know 
15 days or something like that um, in a warehouse in Venice. But like it was oh, like, the like, usual like, warehouse right, in Venice right. where all the Battle yes. Beyond the Stars and everything was right. There. But 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 it was like I remember that telling me the funny story about the warehouse, which was like they shot like Carnosaur there, but they built the dinosaur too big and they couldn't <laughs> get it in there, so they had to like cut the head off and all that. But it was you know it was just great. I just got to learn. I, I remember like I was a PA, but like by the end of the shoot, I was holding boom and shots. And yeah. Stuff. So it was. It was it was a lot of fun. It was my first real exposure to actual production. Well, that's the thing about film school. The difference between film school and the real world is everybody does what they need to do. You work weekends. You work as long as it takes to get it done. Film school, you know, you have a schedule that yeah. you meet, and there's it's it's not like the real world where you have to be. This has to be done at this time because yeah. we're kicked out of this location, and this actor's yeah. contract is up at this time. Mm-hmm. Things like that. So, but uh, what was your first sale like for your script? What was your first paying script gig? Well, was that Lumbo? Uh, no, it was our very first script. Uh, we uh, remember when they would do Disney Movie of the Weeks. My first Wonderful directing World? job yeah. was so. Yeah, we 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 pitched on an assignment. It was for a book called Flower Babies for Kennedy Marshall. Um, oh, wow. Though we never uh, saw or met them. <laughs> but it got us our writers. You know, it we, was our we, first script we were paid for. Yeah. And we pitched a take on it, and they hired us to adapt this young adult novel. And um, and we wrote it, and it never got made. And it's how did some... How did you guys get the opportunity? Well, so, right, so, so uh, to, to start, the very first script we wrote was a script called Wild About Nothing, and it was a... Uh, 20-something straight out of college, you know, you're angsty. Everyone writes it when you first get out. It was an um, autobiographical and romantic right. comedy. There was a, a producer we knew, an executive, gave it to her boss, this guy, Carrie Woods, who really liked it. And Carrie called and he said, I'm going to give it to my friend Ari Emanuel and Tom Strickler, who were starting this new agency called Endeavor. Right. And we knew who they were because we were assistants and we were like, oh my God. And we handed the script in on Friday night. And Sunday morning, Ari and Man, I say this was so long ago, Ari ta- you know, <laughs> called us Sunday morning and he read a script. And wow. um, he, he was like, can you guys come in Monday? And we both heard it. And, and that was the first moment where this dream started to feel real. Because saying you're going to be a writer and actually having someone who represented them say, you know what, kid, you got it, Yeah, was was great. And that script never got made, and it but, never... But Ari signed us, and he yeah, believed in it, us enough to... But it gave us the, the confidence to, to say, okay, we, we can be writers. Yeah. yeah. Mine was from Steven Spielberg. You know, I, I, they read a script that got amazing coverage. That's one of my favorite things I've written to this day. It's never been made. But... He offered me the first script on Amazing Stories and then another one and then asked me to be story editor. And it's like suddenly when you're knighted by King Stephen, the people who've never read you before, they still don't read you, but they hire you. (laughs) You That's amazing. So uh, tell me about the movies that excited you, the the movies that you wanted to make that maybe never got made, that, that were the things that wanted that you wanted to to get across that best reflected your personalities as filmmakers you, you mean things that we wrote or? yeah yeah the things you're, well, you know it's a, it's a tough call because i think um because we got into tv so early yeah. we didn't write a lot of movie specs um and when the ones that we wrote in the 90s um 
uh, we didn't love, you know? Really? Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. So they're not your babies. You're okay so, so, to move yeah. So the yeah. first one we wrote was this romantic comedy, which I love, but it is a time capsule of a period of my life I don't want to revisit. <laughs> and I don't. And I couldn't make that movie, nor do I think it should be made now, but I think right. it... I'm glad somebody recognized something in it or thought they saw some talent in it and helped start our career. But but I, think thing- what, but, but I think what happened was what we touched on before was I think for a while we were writing the wrong thing. And I think there was a disconnect between what we loved and what we did. Like we loved genre movies. We loved all these 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 kind of stories that for some reason we we never attempted in a real way and and then when we started to to get work it was in um on television a lot of it was in the high school genre and in young adult stuff and we 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 were doing well in it so we kept doing it but that we had this itch we weren't scratching and until we started to do that we didn't really start to feel the creative fulfillment that we were looking for yeah and i think you know the 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 benefit of once was because we could do anything we wanted we got to do everything we wanted right and that um, was your baby too yeah, that was our baby so that you created was, it and you ran it yeah and you know it's interesting because sometimes you don't even realize that you're writing about an issue but mm-hmm. like i'll be watching once now with my daughter who's like on season two and i'll just look up and go oh i didn't realize that's what we were going through at that mm-hmm. time or that um you know the show that i loved the most um was dead of summer that we did together well that's what i wanted yeah. to, to mention too so, because that is your one horror endeavor. That is our one horror and that was like, you was, know, what we wanted to do was mix John Hughes and John Carpenter and right. I think, you know, the, those those two things um, also very much illustrate and, and I was really obsessed with this horror film in the late 80s, Angel Heart. Oh, with, yeah. With Lisa Bonet and Mickey, Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke, who I just did a movie yes, with. Yes, yeah. and I saw it at a midnight showing on Acid. I hope my mom is listening. <laughs> Um, uh, when I was a senior in high school and I loved that he was looking for himself. Yeah. And so when we did Dead of Summer, it's really, we wanted it, we called it our midlife crisis show. It was <laughs> kids in the late 80s. Um, and, you know, uh, and then and then we got to that twist. And that was the show that I, I, I loved. We loved so much. I think it was at the wrong network. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so at that time it was it ABC was. Family, and now known as Freeform, Freeform. but it's still aimed at yeah, a so young audience. They, you know, they they we, just, we thought they were going to be something different and allow us to do something different, yeah. and it wasn't. And it's like the show that I still to this day say, "Oh, we're gonna re, we're gonna resell it. We're gonna oh, do it. good because I I want to come back. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, Mick directed it. our favorite episodes of it, and in a lot of ways, <laughs> you kind of helped us. The way you directed that episode three was it made us start to realize, oh, okay. You, uh, you kind of showed us the strengths in the, of the show, and we oh, started to write to you. that. So, um, because you're always learning. And it was. Yeah, like, me too. Like, yeah. that was a genre that I've. I've always loved, but I, I, I'd never done before or been steeped in in a way where to, to do. So it was, it was a lot of it was learning by doing. Right. Like, I loved John Carpenter growing up, like Escape from New York, the thing, yeah. like, you know, I, I, I would watch them over and over again. And, and, and it was like, and, but I also loved. John Hughes and like right. and those episode. late night cable horror movies that you've never saw yeah. in a theater but right. like when you're when you're 15 Cinemaxing, yeah. yeah so there was a part of us that wanted this, this to feel like you know everyone knew Fast Times at Ridgemont High but if you had HBO you knew Valley Girl and so it was like <laughs> exactly. we wanted this show to have that late 80s cable night feel but also those that and and I just 
we never got the resources to achieve it. Yeah. And the budget was was pretty tight. Ooh, and, and they were very frightened of the 80s because I remember yeah. they said, oh, what would you like the poster to be? We said, oh, it should look like a VHS cover. Right. And, Sleep away camp yeah, or something. And, they, yeah. and they, they were very frightened of the 80s. And then two weeks after Stranger Things came out, and it was, it was like, like, oh, the '80s can work. Oh, you can do that. But yeah. it, was, it was, it was, it was a tough. It was, it was a battle, and you know, to to make it to make that show in the '80s to have them let us do it that way, and to also do it on the budget we had, which was, which was not right, and you know, and it. it it is something that's near and dear to us, which you know maybe one day we'll be able to revisit because we'd love to. And it was, it was. I mean, it was our favorite twist ever. Well, it was, it was really fun to do, but it was so difficult. I mean, we got rained out once oh, yeah. that was just oh. phenomenal. I'd never seen that much rain in my life, and then reshooting parts of it and the like. But, but there was this beautiful summer camp set. That yeah, was yeah. built to work interiors and exteriors, but it was an hour and a half away from the yeah. city. So you found it yourself no electricity, not, no electricity, and and with three hours of travel time, yeah. your actors were only on the clock yeah. for twelve hours a day, and you you ended up doing a lot of interior interiors in Burnaby on the stages yes. because you had this perfect practical set, but you couldn't because use it couldn't because you'd use half your day just getting there and back. No, it's we it was a bad battle of resources it was it's funny because when when you do a project as you know it's we always say it's like you're putting bets in and you hope that most of them come back and you win and it's like once everything was perfect like the once pilot like everything just went our way and then dead of summer was one it was just a struggle the whole way through yeah well it was fun to be early on in dead of summer because the rules had not been written in stone yet. There wasn't a style that had been yep. established visually yet, and there were some really good directors on. But I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was you guys telling me, just do what you do. Yeah. And, and you know, kind of came up with some signature lens uses and things oh, like that. Great. That I, that's great. I, yeah. I do. Now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> we felt like this is, this is oh, what shucks. we wanted. Yeah, <laughs> no, that was an amazing episode and it's funny because it's like and it's the show that no one even knew it was on yeah so it's like that's why we're like we have to redo it but that's the one that i love the most and i'm still proud of and there are rough moments and there are you know unfortunately uh anachronistic 80s things because Mm -hmm. we couldn't afford the real 80s things but it's like when i look at it to like as a whole and what we're trying to achieve i i just love that and i am i am proud of the storytelling of where yeah. it got and how we landed it and and how the story ended and the twists we got to and and, and how and it the things out. we did with and the resources we had it was kind of an apollo 13 it was like, you can direct and do the episode with everything in this box. Yes, exactly. Well, it's also the one flat-out horror thing yeah. that you've done on, on your long list of credits. And it was, it, was, it was fun to do it for that very reason, which was to, to play in that genre and to really go for it. You know, it's, it's, we, we kind of touched on horror in little tiny ways, like with once there were some tiny elements of it. There's some pretty massively horrific things in both those shows. And go to horrific things, but we never full on went into the genre. And it was fun for us to dive into that and to, to, to play in that sandbox. And learn, yeah. Well, are there summer camp horror movies that really inspired you or that was really a part of what made you hungry to do something like that? You know, I, I think like, 
just collectively the Friday the 13th movies, yeah. watching them on cable as a kid when I was too young to watch them kind of gets in your brain. Is there a favorite Friday of yours? Because, I mean, there I, are... I, I will tell you, and, and I hate to put it this way, I'll tell you my, the most disappointing one to me was when he goes to New York, because I'm <laughs> oh, from New York. Oh, Jason goes, goes to New York. And he only yeah. gets to New York at the very end of the movie. So it's yeah. like I'm waiting for him to like come into my neighborhood and like terrorize me, but he never did that. My favorite is Six. I mean, that was Scream before there was Scream. Yeah. It was funny and scary mm-hmm. and really clever and all of that. Yeah, all those movies, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I remember my brother took me to Halloween, and I remember the scene. I was nine years old, and I remember the scene where they were like, oh, this is where the killer used to live, and the house was decrepit, and mm-hmm. every neighborhood had one house that was abandoned. And yes. de- yeah, and I yeah. just that freaked me out. And just the mystery of what happened here and who this guy was and how frightened I was at not knowing or being shown anything. Right. right. And that, that I just loved. And I loved the 80s was these teens in this almost like Charles Schultz Peanuts world where parents aren't around doing it for themselves. And I think that's what I love so much about all those movies. And that's why we liked... Summer, you know, I went to summer camp, so that's my uh-huh. crisis okay, part. There you go. And they and and it's like summer camps really were the scariest places because you could be attacked at night at any point. There really weren't guards. The people in charge were eighteen-year-olds. Right, you're in the middle of nowhere. You're in the middle of nowhere. So, like, if someone had it, you're on a lake. There's so many points of entry, and so for us, it was always that was frightening. And then you look at these movies and the kids doing it themselves. We're like, let's let's put that together. And then, of course, there are great summer camp, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, there's or, <clears throat> lots of story. Did you go to summer camp? I as well? did too. So yeah. there was. It, we drew on all of that stuff. This time, time, it's personal. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and and you know, in addition to the summer camp stuff, I loved all the Nightmare on Elm Street stuff, which I think kind of seeped into it in some ways too. There was. You know, where we you know, surrealist. I, yeah, I loved Wes Craven. My one of my favorite horror movie memories, which just kind of came to me as we're talking about this, was seeing when when you mentioned Scream. A precursor to it was when he did New Nightmare. Right. Yeah. Very seeing, meta. Yeah. But but, but here's the thing: <laughs> I went to see that opening night in Westwood, mm-hmm. and I remember sit, sitting in the theater watching it, and he was there. Talk about the meta! Watching <laughs> it, the movie that's meta within the movie with that. Freaked me out uh, in a great way. Such a sweet guy and such a great loss. Uh, yeah, really. Brilliant. And I think I think those '80s movies made us then in film school go back and see like you know oh let's let's watch Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, let's watch yeah. some of the Polanski horror. Let's see The Omen. And, yeah, you know, I mean when I was like a kid, that. I was seeing those things yeah. in the theater and seeing Rosemary's Baby in 1968 and all of that stuff. And <clears throat> to be educated in that way and to keep an ongoing education within and without the genre. Now, both of you guys have kids, right? Yes. yes. So did you find that that changed your approach to your work, having becoming parents? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it did. It. I mean, I think it's certainly... It, I mean, it's like... It's like um, I think it, it, it matured me in a lot of ways, and like it, it sort of helped deepen the way we approach writing and the way we approach character and and the way like the way we would write a family scene before we had a family versus Mm -hmm. having one i think became radical it's it's interesting because you know you can point out some of the amelin or the spielberg movies like et and you know when i went to see it elliot's bedroom looked like my bedroom i had those star wars toys that dinner table looked like mine and then you rewatch it now and i identify with the parents 
You know uh-huh. what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. you start to identify with, oh, the, these guys had families. They were our age. They were like entering into a new world, you know? And so they were writing about that. And so I, I think that's what's interesting is, is when you write, you know, you can, you, as you experience more of life, you get more depth in what you're writing. So I remember the very first time on this high school show we wrote popular, we wrote a birth scene and it was like the, the our producer <laughs> thankfully was like, this isn't how it is. <laughs> and then when we had kids, we joked and it's like how little we knew. But yeah. I, I think, I think also one of the things like it, Weirdly, I I feel like before we had children, we didn't really feel any responsibility. It was like, what's cool? And then with Once Upon a Time, I started to see all these families watch it together. And you started to say like, okay, like we never wanted to be bleak. We wanted to be hopeful. But then you start to like, okay, is is this earned? Are we just doing this because it's a cool shot? Right, to be transgressive or to, to yeah. 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 And and so So it deepened you? Do you think it softened you? You know... That's a tough one. I, I think that, you know, yes and no. I think it, it, yes, in the sense that it's opened us up to thinking of stories in, in different ways and from different, a different perspective I and really, really seeing things from, from the, those point of views, from like the point of view of children and watching our kids grow up. But I think also not in the sense that I look at my kids and I, I do often think about like, like the stuff I watched when I was there, my, my, my girls are nine years old and my son is six. And I'm like, wow, I was watching poltergeist then, whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, and it's like, I don't, you know, and I, I, I joke about this. I have this argument with my wife, like, it's okay for them to see that. And she's like, you deal with the nightmares, yes. but, but, but it's, but I think that it's like, there, there's a push. I don't think it softens you. It deepens you. Yeah. So, you know, we it's not like we write and we want to pull punches, but at the same respect, hopefully you've 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 connected on a level outside yourself. Well, like you say, you earn the dark spots yeah. that you go to. But I think one of the things that I find like that's interesting about it is when I watch movies or television with my children now, I can see them in a different way that I haven't been able to see in a long time because I watching it through their eyes and how they're experiencing things for the first time and sort of without the baggage of being an adult and all the things I've gone through, it's, 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 it's sort of a pure absorption of story. And I mm-hmm. think it's, that's super helpful in thinking about when, when writing something about how, how an audience is going to take something because, you know, particularly when we're trying to do, you know, something that we want to be consumed by all audiences you know, you want to have ways that everybody can access it, but without ever writing down to the audience. So, so it's like, it's Carlton, Carlton and Damon gave us this great note on lost and I'll never forget it. They were like, what do you want the viewer to feel? And that was like, Oh, cause you're, you, sometimes you write and you're like, Oh, this character wants this, or wouldn't this be cool? Or I want to write this joke, but it's like, no, no, no. The totality of the scene. What, what am I feeling in that moment? How do you put the scene in the moment? And I think that's what horror does so well is it puts you in that moment. You're really with that person walking down the hallway. Right. You are them. You are them. Yeah. And the and dead of summer, like I remember the scene you shot with Cricket in the girls' bathroom. Oh yeah, was because at my camp the bathroom was a walk and it was dark and you brought your flashlight and if you had to go at like you know and you were the only one in there it was it was 
you started to be nervous. It didn't matter if you were 14 or 12 or 10. And so, and so I that remember, was really a fun scene. Yeah. Too. And yeah. you directed it and you really just, you just, the way you just took us through it and, and you were in her point of view and you felt mm. that and just brought oh, the tension was amazing yeah. to us. Well, it was a good opportunity to work with, just like having that script on Once Upon a Time was like a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And who would think that a show about Snow White and Beauty and the Beast would be where I would be in tears for the first time in my life on a a set when I'm directing? You know, those opportunities of, of playing with the film stocks and with the speeds of the camera and the lenses and the like was... Because you gave me that, you know, that brochure and allowed me to fill that out. What was it like the first time that you guys sold a script and saw it produced? Well, it was, I mean, it was. I wish it was selling, uh, but it was. uh, The first time we saw something produced was when we, our first staff job, which was on the remake of Fantasy Island. Right. And it was. For me, I remember feeling like at that point, and we were we were very young. We were like twenty six, I think, you know, and and it was. But I remember feeling like at that point, I would never have anything produced, and never could I write anything that would ever get made. And just seeing it, like just watching those first dailies, it was just like magical. It's like, oh my god. We wrote that. <laughs> we said he had a baseball cap. He's literally wearing a baseball cap. Like it was, it was just you were a kid again. And 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 I think that's that's the that's the interesting thing is you realize is when you write alone in your room is one thing, but when you bring it to life, it becomes a collaboration. And and so you know it takes an entire village, and then to see it come out is like it's there's no other feeling. I, I remember like one little detail, and I, I can't remember exactly, but I remember like we had written a scene in that episode where a character was drinking something at a bar, and like they were drinking the drink that we had written in there, which I think we just willy nilly picked something. And I remember it stuck with me like every little detail. There's a prop person's gonna like make the drink, put it in there, and put like the little umbrella in it. If you say an umbrella, yeah. even as in a joke in your script, it's going to yeah. If you say that. giant cupcake, right. they it's, will it's literally bring a giant cupcake. <laughs> but it was like it was a great lesson on like the first thing we produced to make us think about every detail matters from top to bottom. Like when you're putting these things together, because and and I think it all comes down to what Eddie was saying about like it's about what's the feeling you're trying to create. So don't just put something in there just. For no reason. There's got to be a plan. Yeah, and, or, and or I would say, like, all. you know, some of the specs, we wrote a couple specs that didn't sell, but we realized, like, we wrote one about um, uh, uh, a kid with an estranged father who's a genius, and he goes to college, and he wants to stay with his dad he's never really known. And it didn't sell, but that little kid became Henry. Ah, you know, okay. once yeah. upon a time. And so you start to realize, like, um, you know, we wrote this vampire uh, script that we wanted to be like Wedding Crashers, where it was like two guys um, uh, accidentally get bit on their bachelor party, and now he has to get married while he's figuring out how to not be a vampire. <laughs> and we thought we were writing a comedy, but it ended up being way more genre. And we uh, realized, oh, that's let's lean into that for the yes. next one, uh, you know. Uh, and so I, I, it's funny because it's like there are scripts you write and you wish and you hope and you keep trying to sell. And then there's ones that you realize are just the test rocket on the way to go right, to the moon. Right, yeah. no. You know, and I think we've had a lot more of those. Yeah, we haven't done a lot of features. I mean, the, the one feature we've written was Tron, which, right. which was not a spec, which was a, 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 a Tron yeah. Legacy, which was the, the sequel to Tron. We were way too young to write the original. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you were. But, um, but, that, but which, was, which was a different thing. And that was its own sort of like watching that be made 
was insane. But and it probably changed a lot during the course of production, or, it, or did it? it you know production, what? not no, because no. of the complications, um, uh, because of how much like of the world was being created that had to be pre-vised. Once mm-hmm. we got into production, it pretty much stayed. Getting to production, right. we rewrote that script we, we, at least a hundred times. Passed. Oh my god! The number yeah. of drafts we wrote, I, I, we lost track of. But it was it was a really amazing experience and an interesting process because it was so complex um, visually and effects wise that like ninety percent of the movie was previs. Um, so we that, really got to work with a director on that one because in mm-hmm. TV you work with a director in 10 days but it's kind of like here's the script you right. call us we have a tone meeting you have a couple questions yeah you're in LA I'm in Vancouver yeah, you yeah. Go do it. and <laughs> yeah. you know no, this and was, this one was really like we would get into the office with Joe and like we would watch his scene or we would Joe create a scene together yeah. and it was like really understanding like that process but right. that was and that was amazing for us too to be able we would sit with Joe and the production designer or the VFX people on a digital domain and like you know talk about a set piece and then we would rewrite the scene and then almost in real time they'd start to do it or they'd show us the artwork and then it and was a retrofit it, yeah. yeah and that's not the usual way movies work no <laughs> usually yeah. you do two drafts they bring in three other people yeah. and they bring you back because you're the cheaper no yeah. <laughs> yeah well with Hocus Pocus my Disney experience well I was the first writer out of literally 12 writers and then it was made eight years after I yeah. worked on it and uh, very strange. So I want to complete the circle here with my first produced screenplay. It was a rewrite where I'm not credited on for an episode of Amazing Stories that Martin Scorsese directed. Oh, yeah. So I'm watching Sam Waterston do lines wow. uh, of dialogue that I wrote with Helen Shaver and Martin Scorsese directing it. And I'm just keeping at a distance going... I wrote those words. Those are my words. And for Amazing Stories, which was my first job, Stephen hired me based on a a spec script that he had read that has not been made to this day. You are now doing the reboot version of Amazing Stories for Spielberg Mm -hmm. and Apple. So tell me about this experience. You're, You're going from something you created entirely on your own that you ran the way you wanted to, and now you're collaborating on the reboot of something that was not successful successful in its original uh, airing, but it's the opportunity to do kind of anything because yeah. it's an anthology. That, you know, I think that was, you know, I mean, as we said, we, we, we have, uh, you know, uh, been inspired and worshipped Stephen our whole life. So the opportunity to work with him now was, you it know, was the opportunity was a of a lifetime. Come true. And having done 156 episodes of once, you, what happens is by season four, five, and six, you're sustaining Right and and uh, it's like a guy in the back that keeps saying stretch. Right. You know? <laughs> How did you expect once to go for seven no, seasons? We, didn't we think thought it would go seven episodes. <laughs> Everyone predicted it to be the first canceled. It was like fairy tales don't work and nothing works Sundays at eight. And we said, great, they always cancel you at seven. Right. Like <laughs> if you're lucky, you get about six or seven weeks. So we only have to worry about that. Yeah. And then when we premiered, it was the number one highest show of the year, and wow. so we were like, oh. Wow. So, oh, damn. Now we yeah, have to do exactly. it. <laughs> so, seven years later, we love the opportunity to, to, to do, you know, something that was uniquely individual and to, to do what we love best, which was kind of just let our minds wander and have each 
episode be its own tone because that's what I loved about Amazing Stories is the original is you could have a really sweet one with a grandpa and his kid. Right. You could have the the horror one with the guy in the mirror that you just talked about. Right. And it was just it's it's um it was freeing. Yeah, and it, it's it's an incredible challenge and there's an incredible high bar and you know we're you know obviously Stephen is you know unparalleled in in this business so um you know we're, we're we've just started to dig yeah, we're into three weeks it in, right? so, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's you know we'll see what happens we're, 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 series, i yeah. think that for us personally after you know seven years of doing once upon a time which had been our baby you know which as i think we said it was like 15 or 16 years ago when we came up with the idea it was like we, we to think about what we wanted to do next to be able to work like some with someone like Steven Spielberg, who has you know been someone we've looked up to our entire career, was just this incredible opportunity. And we just, you know, we we just want to you know do our best. Yeah, and, and it's it's like it's getting an opportunity to do ten movies. You know? Yeah, because so, guys, so that's the commitment is yeah, ten. Yeah, we did so forty four. Like, yeah. yeah, you guys did forty four, and each one was like, actually I wrote or co wrote ten on that. Yeah, <laughs> it was like. 30-minute episodes, except for, like, Yeah, a except for the two specials, yeah. so we yeah. get to do an hour, and so for us, it's like getting to do 10 movies, yeah. and so the, the... One of the things I learned from it that I used later on when I created Masters of Horror was embrace the filmmaker. Yeah. You know, that you've got Martin Scorsese doing it, let him do what he does. You've got Bob Zemeckis doing it, let him do what he does. Steven Spielberg doing what he does, that... With Masters of Horror, it was John Carpenter and Toby Hooper and Dario Argento and all these yeah. people. And so, are there filmmakers attached yet to do that? I'm um, not yet. And you know, as we say, you know, we're three weeks in, so yeah. we're yeah. we're just getting into that. But you know, we're hoping to have many wonderful people. Well, I yeah, I and, don't... That, and that's also you know the fun for us is you get to collaborate. Like we met on Dead of Summer, but yeah. then we carried it into Once Upon a Time, and and you. That's the fun of the business is the collaboration and getting to learn from different people because that's or else it's just a very isolating, lonely career of your writer in your apartment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Is it so have there been marching orders yet on what the show is? Um we we have we did uh in June um a think tank and uh-huh. we kinda came up with like fifteen ideas. Um for us, you know, we wanna we wanna really, you know, capture the wonder and that that positivity um, that that you guys did in the beginning, and just you know, for us, we don't want to be nostalgic. We want to be contemporary. Great. So we want to see, like, you know, what is amb- you know, what are these, what does these stories mean today and yeah. in today's world? And because you know, when we created once, we've always been kind of hopeful writers. You know, um, on Lost, we would do a dark episode, and then Adam and I would come in and be like, Hurley finds a van, and you know, so that's <laughs> yeah. what. That's what we like to do. So, so I think for us, it was like Once Upon a Time came right after the financial crisis in 2008. And we were like, we need a show about hope. And we were so anti-heroed out. Yes. There's so many like cable and dark, bleak anti-heroes. And so, again, today we feel like, well, the world actually needs more hope. And I think I love coming of age, you know, and I love the, those moments in life where you're at a crossroads and the amazing comes in. And I think that's what really we love so much was amazing stories was always usually a pretty ordinary thing. And then something extraordinary came into it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so for us, that's, 
I think that's we just that's play, like we, we just want to play in that sandbox that till today and and see where it goes. Well, uh, we could go on and on, but that seems like the perfect place to end it. Thank you guys so Thanks, much man. for taking the time oh, out, so Eddie Kitsitz, Adam Horowitz, and uh, Postmortem. Thanks for everything. Oh, thank you. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at MickGarrisInterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.